When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. You're welcome to Audio Judo. Like you said, what your podcast of music discovery. What are we? Audio Judo. Oh, okay. Proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the uh, best source for all of your music podcasts. Uh, this is our last episode of our third season of Audio Judo, episode yeah. number 87. Wow. We have listeners all over the world, which is just bonkers, to quote Kyle. Mm-hmm. With this episode, we are nearing over 100,000 downloads of our episodes, Yeah, plus another 25,000 from our spinoffs, and we are so grateful to you, the listeners, who continue to tune in every two weeks and listen to our takes on some records. Yes. Thank you all so much, because we wouldn't... I mean, we'd still probably do this if you weren't there, but it helps knowing that people actually want to listen to you and that uh, there are people out there that uh, were hopefully inspiring to listen to some new music. Right. We'd also like to let you know that if you enjoy listening to Audio Judo, you can find more of us at our Patreon. Mm -hmm. Kyle, would you like to uh, fill them in? Sure thing. So we now have three tiers on our Patreon. Uh, The lowest tier actually doesn't get you into that, but it does help us out quite a bit. We call it the Shout It Out Loud tier. For only one of whatever your local currency is, whether it's dollars, euros, pounds, or simoleons, uh, for only one of those a month, you can get a shout out on every episode. Um, at the end of every episode from now on, we're going to read the names of everybody who's in that tier, uh, including all the other tiers. But uh, yeah, and it does help us out a little bit, buys us some beer, helps us buy some new equipment, keeps the web servers running, keeps the lights on in this room. Uh, jump up from that. You can go to the front row seats tier. It is $5 a month. And for 5 bucks a month, you can really help us keep making the podcast and you get a little extra something for yourself in return. A shout out, uh, excuse me, a shout out by name at the end of every single episode, same as the shout out loud tier, but you also get two day early access to full episodes, access to bonus mini episodes called judo chops that Matthew was just alluding to. And some occasional bonus bits, uh, such as unedited interviews, behind the scenes videos and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes, mostly due to us burping and farting. You really want to help the podcast out and get, even more for yourself in return, you can jump up to the backstage pass tier. It is 20 US dollars per month. However, for that, uh, you will get a shout out by name at the end of every episode, a two day early access to full episodes, access to the judo chops, the bonus bits of farts and burps, plus a very special personalized gift after three months at that tier. And 
the big one, a chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo uh, on the album of your choice. Uh, that benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier and can only be activated once. However, we will do whatever album you pick. So you can really punish us or you can introduce the world to an album that you really love or your own album if you're so inclined. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Right? So Matthew. Yes. Today. Yes. For the last episode of season three. For the last episode of season Kyle three. Kyle has decided to go for the jugular. Right. Talk about a band that I have generally avoided talking about or addressing in any way on this program. Which is amazing to me. I have not referenced them, except maybe obliquely during our Steely Dan episode on the album Asia. Fair. I will talk about the why somewhere in this episode, but not quite yet. Today, Kyle has picked the 1975 album. One of these nights by Eagles. Let's let's address it right off the top. Eagles, not the Eagles. <laughs> I got to cross that out. I have, that's uh, way over on page right? two for wait, me. Wait, wait. Let's cross that right out. So uh, they have, in fact, said uh, uh, that it is Eagles, not the Eagles. Right. Uh, I have always called them the Eagles for my entire life. I will probably do it at least once during this episode. I apologize to Eagles fans. Well, I already said this. I already wrote that down. This creates a whole bunch of weird language issues. Yeah. So for the sake of this podcast and ease of speaking, I will still be calling them the Eagles and you can't make me change my mind. Fair enough. It is. There are some times where you're like, well, Eagles were, <laughs> and it just doesn't sound right. But I, I tried to write this episode. As, Where are you going tonight? I'm going to see Eagles. Going to see Eagles. <laughs> what? Well, like why are you the, talking like that? The birds, or are you going somewhere? No, yep. Eagles at the Coliseum. Oh, the are Eagles? they releasing them into the wild or what? No, Eagles, <laughs> you know. This album changed their fortunes. It did. Turned them into international superstars. Kane's. Contains some very well-known songs. Oh, yes, it does. Lesser-known songs as well. Sold very well. Generally got decent reviews, although not stellar. Our old buddy Robert Christigau gave it a C+. And as far as I could tell, despite its popularity, it doesn't appear on any best-of lists or anything like that. Yeah. So that begs the question, why did you pick it, Kyle? Picked it for two reasons, Matthew. So, first of all, one of my favorite Eagle songs is on here. And we will get back to that when we get you're to the track. To, track. You're really trying to say eagles and trying, not the eagles. <laughs> trying so hard. One of my favorite eagle songs is on here. Second of all, I hate Hotel California. Oh, me too. Not, not the album. The album is fine. The song is garbage. I'm sorry. It is so overplayed. It's not a very good song. Oh my gosh. This is... Feel I feel more connected to you. A kinship. That I have before. Like even more than before. Yeah. Now it's um. I'm sorry. I know a lot of Eagle fans out there who are probably like, "Oh, Hotel California is the song." It. <sighs> I'm going to get to the why. Yeah. The why is going to come up. Fair enough. This is going to be a different episode. This is critical. I think. That, okay. That we're going to talk about that. So, because in all honesty, uh, if you look at their sales numbers, their greatest hits album consistently might be the best selling album of all time. <laughs> yes. Um. It consistently flips spots with Thriller. And depending on the numbers you look at, uh, it is between 42 and 54 million albums sold. Yeah. And Thriller is between like 44 and 60 million sold. Yeah, I got that a ways um, down here. It's, I, this I is, do too. This is, crit this is critical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, their second best-selling album is Hotel California. And I don't – the sales numbers are later in my notes, so we'll get to that. Yep. I could not in good conscience pick an album where there's a song that is one of my least favorite songs of all time. I couldn't do it. That being said, if you really are an Eagles fan, go listen to Hotel California and enjoy it. 
I am not going to fault you for that, but it's a song that I don't care. No, for. you, yeah, by all means, go listen to it. Yeah. I just don't want to hear it. And please stop playing it on classic rock radio every 15 minutes. That Thank would you. be great. So that's, that's where I want to talk about the Eagles for a second. Sorry. You want to talk about Eagles for a second? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, Eagles were formed in 1971 mm-hmm. when Linda Rodstant was looking for a backup band. Well, we got to go back even farther than that. You want to go back further than that? Because unlike all the other bands that we've talked about, the first four members of Eagles aren't from the same area. They really didn't know each other before forming a band. Right. And they're, they were all in somewhat successful bands before this. So Don Henley was born uh, July 22nd, 1947 in Gilmer, Texas, and grew up in Linden, Texas. He joined the football team, but his coach told him he wasn't big enough to play football, so he joined the band. He initially played the trombone and then moved to percussion. Uh, he went a couple of years to, uh, he, excuse me, he went to a couple of years of college before sadly having to leave to spend some time with his father, who was dying from arterial disease. Uh, during that time, Don also played in several small local bands. His most successful stint was with a band uh, called Shiloh. Shiloh. Yeah, they had at least ten name changes before that, though. So, but they recorded an album with yeah. uh, Kenny Rogers as a good producer. old Kenny. Uh, yeah. Kenny, uh, and they released a single called "Jennifer Oh My Lady." And sadly, right before they released that, uh, band member Jerry Seurat died in a dirt bike accident. Uh, so that's kind of a bummer. However, Kenny Rogers helped Shiloh uh, sign with Amos Records and brought them to Los Angeles in 1970 to record a self-titled album. But then they disbanded shortly after due to creative differences. But he did meet somebody along the way who was his label mate. Yes, Glenn Frey. Glenn Frey. Born in Detroit, Michigan. Yes. Should, yeah. should, should know who he is. I do. Uh, you should be best friends, right? Yeah, we're, we're pals. Uh, well, November 6, anymore, 1948, yeah. and raised in nearby Royal Oak. Yeah. I, I don't know what that area is like. But Royal Oak is uh, – it borders Detroit. It also uh, houses the Detroit Zoo at uh, 11 in okay. Woodward. Uh, he started playing piano at age five and picked up guitar a few years after that. He also founded a whole bunch of bands and bounced around between several local bands in the 1960s Detroit rock scene. What band did he come to L.A. with, though? We'll get to that in just a second. Oh, okay. Because I say in 1967, he met Bob Seeger, yep. who we've done an episode on, who helped him get a management and recording contract with Hideout Records, a label formed by Seeger's management team. Uh, he intended to join Bob Seeger's band, but he was blocked by his mother uh, because she found out that he had been smoking pot with Bob Seeger. What? Oh. He did play acoustic guitar, however, on this song, Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, and he would later sing on the songs Fire Lake and Against the Wind. So already pretty successful. Glenn has also encouraged, uh, credited Bob Seger as encouraging him to focus on writing original songs. Glenn followed his girlfriend to Los Angeles, where he was introduced to J.D. Souther, and after bouncing back to Detroit for a few weeks, he then went back to L.A. and formed a band called Long Breach Penny Whistle. Right. Which signed with Amos Records. Long Breach Penny Whistle. Long Breach Penny Whistle. What a name. Glenn wrote and performed songs live and for their first uh, self-titled album, Long Long Beach, Long Branch Penny Whistle. I cannot pronounce that for life. Long Branch Penny Whistle. Long Branch Penny Whistle. I think I pronounced it wrong like six times in a row right there. Uh, Frey was actually neighbors in an apartment building at the time with uh, J.D. Souther, and they lived above Jackson Brown, who they became friends with, and he did say that- It's a big community. Yeah. Hearing Jackson Brown create music in his apartment actually inspired him and taught him how to help make better songs. So in 1970, Glenn met Don Henley. Uh, who we just mentioned. And yeah, both the Troubadour. Spent, yeah, and they both spent a lot of time there. And then since they were both signed to the same label, it made a lot of sense. Bernie Ledden uh, was born July 19, 1947 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Weirdly, there's not a whole lot of information on what happened to Bernie between 1947 and when he started to play with a country rock band uh, in the early 1960s. 
he moved to San Diego and started with a band called the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers, mm-hmm. 1962. Um, like Glenn and Don, he moved between a lot of bands during the 1960s, recording multiple albums with varying bands. In the late 1960s, he joined Linda Ronstadt's backing band, the Corvettes, before leaving to join the Flying, Flying Burrito, Burrito Brothers, Brothers, which wonderful name for a band. And they're actually really good, by the way. Um, a country rock-based band in L.A., but he was around in L.A. at the scene. Uh, Randy Meisner, born Randall Herman Meisner in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, March 8th, 1946, to a family of farmers who had immigrated to the U.S. only one generation before from the Volga-German region of Russia, which if you know anything about that, was a fucking mess. It's a surprise, the Russians were terrible people during that time period. What? Uh, Randy had a musical childhood, recalling that his mother used to sing songs around the house all the time, and his grandfather taught violin to people, including himself. Uh, He found himself interested in playing guitar after seeing Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show, and immediately began taking lessons. In high school, a teacher suggested he switch to the bass, because he probably could play it better, and Randy had also played with several different local bands uh, before moving to L.A. in 1966-ish with the band The Soul Survivors, that's S-O-U-L, uh, who renamed themselves to The Poor after moving there. Don Felder would later say they changed their name to The Poor because that is what they became. Makes sense. Right? The Poor recorded a few singles, open for Jimi Hendrix experience in New York in 1967, but they failed to take off. Who? Right? Who? Jimi Hendrix? I don't Never know. heard of him. Uh, Randy would then audition to join the band Poco, uh, beating out some nobody, other nobody musicians named uh, Greg Allman mm-hmm. and Timothy B. Schmidt. Mm-hmm. He would eventually be yeah. in the who would eventually be in Poco. Right. And eventually be in Eagles. Right. He recorded Poco's first album, uh, along with former Buffalo Springfield members, Richie Fury and Jim Messina. Also, again, never heard of him. But left the band shortly before the album was released due to being excluded from participating in the mixed playback sessions. Because of that, his image was removed from the album's cover and replaced with a picture of a dog. Uh, mm, his bass parts classic. and backing vocals were left in, but his lead vocals were removed, and new versions were sung by George Grantham. He then joined Rick Nelson's Stone Canyon Band, who he recorded and toured with until 1970, when after a very hard European tour, he said, I'm done, and he returned to, and he returned to Nebraska, where he spent his days selling tractors and his nights playing with a local band called Gold Rush. Uh, Rick Nelson eventually encouraged him to return to L.A. and pick, a, uh, and pick his career back up, and he did. Uh, rejoining the Stone Canyon Band and attempting to get Gold Rush some local gigs. So now that gets all original four members of Eagles to L.A. Mm-hmm. In mid-1971, record producer and manager John Boylan uh, was putting together a new backing band for Linda Ronstadt. Boylan approached Glenn Frey because they were looking for someone to play rhythm guitar and sing backing vocals. Frey suggested hiring Don Henley because they were both on the same label and they knew each other. Frey and Henley backed Ronsat on her tour, promoting the album Silk Purse, along with a few other musicians. Mm-hmm. After that tour, uh, Boylan reached out to Bernie Ledden, uh, who had played with Linda's backing band, The Corvettes, previously, to join the band. And then Randy Meisner was recruited by Boylan as well. The four recorded the backing uh, tracks to Linda Ronstadt's album, Linda Ronstadt. Creative name. Uh, funnily enough, though, they only backed Linda Ronstadt live once. During a series of performances at Disneyland in June 1971 for one week. Yeah, because Henley and Fry decided that they, mm-hmm. they should form their own band and informed Ronstadt of their intentions. And she was totally supportive of it, even suggesting that they take Burning Leighton with them. They did. And they also pitched the idea to Meisner, who was also on board. So they played that one show at Disneyland, but they would appear on her next album. Yeah. Uh, there there was ahead. a confusing thing in, in looking this up. I think it was actually about a week of shows. 
Yeah, it was. It so wasn't it, just it one show. It says it's one show. I think it was one set it, of shows. It was a set of shows that lasted a week or maybe 10 days over a few different dates. But Let's call it a residency. Right There you go. A residency. It's crazy to me, though, to think that there were people in the 1970s that saw Eagles playing at Disneyland mm-hmm. backing up Linda Ronstadt. That's yeah. bonkers. There was a, there were people that for several weeks could go see that. Crazy. So, so after they left, they signed with David Geffen, who had just formed Asylum Records in September 71, and would perform their first show in Aspen. Not yet the Eagles, sorry, not yet Eagles, they performed as Teen King and the Emergencies. <clears throat> and as much as I tried, I could not find a scrap of information about that name, and I really yeah. wish I had. Teen King and the Emergencies. Uh, the decision to name the band... Eagles is disputed and claimed by a lot of people. Some claim it was from a peyote and tequila fueled expedition to the Mojave Desert, which seems to fit where Glenn Fry yelled Eagles when he saw them fly overhead. Another suggests that Bernie Leiden came up with the name when he recalled the Hopi's reference for the Eagle. Yeah. Comedian, actor, writer, Steve Martin. <laughs> yup. that Steve Martin who was a friend of theirs from their days at the Troubadour, said in his autobiography that he suggested that they refer to themselves as the Eagles. Whoever came up with it, they are, as you mentioned earlier, Eagles, not the Eagles. Yeah. Um, but uh, then they, they, get, they got to recording, you know? Yeah. So they recorded their first album with Glenn Johns. Surprise. We've heard that before, right. Glenn Johns from the Who's episode, Who's Next? Mm-hmm. Uh, February 1972. Self-titled Eagles, released on June 1st, 1972, and had three top 40 singles right off the bat. That was the month I was born, by the way. There you go. So you are exactly as old as Eagles' first album. Yeah. Uh, You're also just exactly as old as Take It Easy, Witchy Woman, and Peace With Uh, Easy Feeling. That's Witch-A Woman. Excuse me. Witch-A Woman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Songs reach number 12, number 9, and number 22, respectively, Mm -hmm. and in in a stroke of weirdo 1970s billings, the Eagles were one of the support acts for Yes, the progressive band with 15-minute long songs on their Close to the Edge tour. Because why not? This is not a bill I would have paid to see. Would I have seen them both separately? Probably. But together, that's a weird fucking show. Let's do peyote sometime and ask yourself if you would then pay to see that band, because I feel like it would change your mind. It's kind of like when Rush... Played a show with Shanana. <laughs> that shit normally very doesn't similar, go well. Very similar. That ha- that actually happened. Yeah, that's crazy. That's what's oh, it's terrible. So their second album, Desperado. Yes, uh, it's a concept album about the old West and cowboy culture. What? Which, why not? It reached number forty-one on the Billboard two hundred, and the singles Tequila Sunrise and Outlaw Man both got on the Billboard Hot one hundred at sixty-one and fifty-nine, respectively. Right, compared the old lifestyles. Of old cowboys with rock stars. And it also started to shift the power balance in the group Mm because Henley and Fry wrote eight of 11 tracks, alienating Leiden and Meisner to some degree, even though those two were the more veteran of the four people. Yeah. It also spawned the song Desperado, which has become a classic. Desperado. Right. Uh, Their next album, On the Border, they started to move a little bit more towards hard rock. Uh, They wanted to change things up a bit. Yeah. So they fired Glenn Johns. Right. They started with him, but then they fired him and uh, turned to Bill Simzik. Simzik. Thank you. Yeah, it's a Polish name. It's would, all right. I got you. I would you. imagine you knew I was going to ask you before we started recording. Simzik. completely forgot. <laughs> Simzik. So Bill and the band would recruit Bernie Ledden's childhood friend, Don Felder, to come in and play a slide guitar on the song, Good Day in Hell. Uh-huh. They were so impressed that he became a fifth member of 
Eagle. Yeah. Blam. Next day. He had also recorded albums with Jay Giles and Joe Walsh. Yes. A connection that would prove fortuitous for the Eagles in a few years' time. Indeed. And they so, wanted the song, the sound to be a little rougher mm-hmm. as well. So they, like you said, they, recru- uh, they recruited Don Felder. Uh, Henley yeah. and Fry had met Felder once before. Yeah. When they had jammed backstage at a Yes concert. Right? What the fuck is that all about? <laughs> so what do you know about Don Felder? Uh, I know quite a bit, but go ahead. He was born in Gainesville, Florida, September 21st, 1947. He also got interested in music by seeing Elvis on the Ed Sullivan Show. That happened a lot. That apparently happened a lot. He bought his first guitar at 10 and started his first band at age 13. Don also bounced around through a bunch of bands, eventually moving to L.A. in 1973 to play guitar for David Blue. Mm-hmm. That album, On the Border, mm-hmm. would produce a few more hits, including Already Gone, which contains a lovely guitar duet with yes, Fry and Felder, and Best of My Love, which mm-hmm. would get to number one on the Billboard Top 100, the first of five Eagles songs to reach that status. In 1974, they played the California Jam to 300,000 people, labeled yeah. as the West Coast Woodstock, with portions of the show actually aired on ABC. The show exposed the band to a much wider audience, and would have them poised on international success as they set to work on the follow-up to On the Border, yeah. the album we're going to talk about today. And funnily enough, Don Felder actually missed that performance because his son was being born. Correct. So Jackson Brown filled in for him on piano and acoustic guitar. Who? Because, you know, when you're uh, you're in that scene, you just call up your famous friends and be like, hey, you know what? Somebody's got to have a baby. Can you come over and play for us, Jackson Brown? Jackson, get over here. So why not? So that gets us up to one of these nights. Uh-huh. Uh, Eagles returned to the studio in late 1974 to begin working on this album. Uh, Glenn Frey and Don Henley wrote four of the nine songs by themselves while sharing a house in Beverly Hills. And they wrote three more uh, with the whole band. Mm -hmm. Glenn said that, quote, one of these nights was the most fluid and painless album they had ever made. Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, their their whole career is filled with pain and ridiculousness. However, uh, Bernie Ledden was becoming increasingly unhappy during the making of this album. Uh, he wrote three of the nine songs, none of which was released as a single. He was super unhappy with uh, the more rock direction the band uh, was in, and it would actually leave in late 1975 after this album was released. Mm-hmm. This album did come out June 10, 1975. In July of that year, it hit number one on the Billboard 200 chart, Eagles' first of four albums to do so. Number eight in the UK, number two in Canada, number five in Australia. Produced three top ten singles, One of These Nights, Lion Eyes, and Take It to the Limit. One of These Nights was the band's second number one on the singles charts. Nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year, the single Lion Eyes was also nominated for Record of the Year. It did win the Grammy for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals. It was also nominated for Best Album Package. Simpler, yep. simpler time. One of These Nights has gone four times platinum in the U.S. with over four million copies sold. And Eagles... Like we said earlier, depending on the metric you use and the info you believe, consistently hold two spots in the top five best-selling albums of all time, mm-hmm. with the albums Hotel California currently at number three, according to Wikipedia, with between 31.8 million and 42 million copies sold, and their greatest hits 1971 to 1975 at number two currently, with 41.2-ish million copies sold. Currently, they are only beaten by Thriller on Wikipedia's ranking at 50.2 million copies. Uh, however, according to several different sources, they may be number one. They may be number three. They may... They sold a shit ton of records. Exactly. That's really what we're coming down to. I mean, all told, they have sold 150 million records as a band. That's a lot. That number is staggering. Right. 
But like I mentioned at the top, wasn't without detractors. No. Rolling Stone magazine only gave them three stars, said that many of the tunes are pretty, but none of them are eloquent. Uh, this was the last album to feature Bernie Leadon. Uh, he felt that his contributions were being minimized, and to some degree they were. And he was replaced a year later by Joe Walsh. Would you like to talk about the artwork? Let's do it. And then I have a very long section of talking. Oh, goody. Uh, <laughs> the front. I know you'd be excited about that. I love it when you talk for an extended period. <laughs> I just love it because I can sit back and have some beer and it's great. Right. So the front cover depicts a cow skull adorned with feathers and beads. Uh, behind it, a pair of eagle's wings extend out. Above it says eagles in blocky blue font. Below that, one of these nights in a yellow-orange script. Right. Now, the back is a picture of the band all wearing black with the track listing up above them. It's truly a beautiful album cover. It is. For all the things I've said about the Eagles in the past and may or may not say about them in the not-too-distant future, I can't say anything <laughs> negative about this cover. It's wonderful. Uh, the cover of the album is an image of a piece of artwork by Boyd Elder, also known during his art shows as El Chingadero. El Chingadero! Or... The fucker. The fucker. He had a fairly successful career, and uh, they would also use another one of his images on the cover of the insanely successful Greatest Hits record 71 to 75 when it came out the following year. So we just had a discussion about the term El Chingadero. Oh, we had a text conversation. We did. Uh, I have always heard the word chingadero used in the same way you would use like pile of shit or piece of shit. <laughs> like, uh, oh, just throw it on the chingadero or, you know. Uh, Randy suggested it translates to fucking thing. <laughs> Matthew looked it up and suggested it could be used like the word thingamajig, uh, but the source noted the root chingar does mean to fuck. Just give me that, give that fucker, uh, give me that fucker over there. So if you speak Spanish and are as filthy-minded as we are, uh, <laughs> please let us know, info at audiojudo.com. How do you translate the word chingadero, and how would you translate the name El Chingadero? El Chingadero. I'm curious to know what an actual Spanish speaker says, not Google Translate. Right. The cover design was done by a friend of the band, Gary Burden, who had worked on every release of theirs up until then. This would be the last time he worked with them, actually. He did a ton of work for Neil Young through the years, was nominated for four Grammys, including for this record, and sadly he passed in 2018. But it is a striking cover, and it looks more like a metal album cover. Oh, to it me. really does. It just looks like that's what, it, as soon as I see it, I'm like, that's got to be some metal shit. Yeah. Oh, it's the Eagles? Right. All right. The band actually met Boyd at an art opening in Venice, California in 1972, where he was exhibiting a bunch of his art, and they were performing a song. Uh, some people say it was Witchy Woman, and some people just say it was a song. So uh -huh. Who knows? From the article, uh, one of these nights, the Eagles would score a number one album by Tony Marino, posted to Pure Music Manufacturing on March 7, 2019. Quote, the skull in the artwork was made to stand out off the cover through a process of debossing sections together with elaborate and detailed embossing of the wings and feathers. De-embossed and embossed. Right. Burden said the cover was to represent a transitional phase that showed both where the band had come from and where it was going. Burden explained that the use of a cow skull was a cowboy folk reference where the decorations on the cover were inspired by the American Indian culture. He pointed to the polished reflective glass beaded surfaces as representing the future. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Also, if you look up how they do that embossing and de-embossing process back in the 70s, that was a very labor-intensive process. It's, it's that involved so involved. Making, it involved making hundreds of copies of, of an image and like carefully hand-cutting shit out. And It's, and a, to, it's to, a lost artwork. It absolutely is, because today it's effect embossed right? in Photoshop. Like we've, <laughs> talked, just done. like we've talked to Aubrey Powell about it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a lost art that was such an amazing 
part of the musical experience that that correlation between the artwork and the the time involved in the artwork yeah. on the cover representing what was inside i think it like it's just something that's that's people have forgotten about yeah and it i mean obviously it did very well because it did receive the grammy nomination for best album package right and it should have yeah. Uh, one other thing to note, on the original vinyl pressing, there was text engraved in the runout grooves on each side of the album. On side one, it said, don't worry. And on side two, it said, nothing will be okay. Yep. And they did that actually on several other albums yeah. too. So Another interesting technical note that I have to go over oh, real quick. Go ahead. This was released in quadraphonic sound, yeah. which today would be called 4.0 sound. Quadraphonic. Uh, I can't tell if it was released that way Both on the vinyl. Yeah. I don't think so, but it was released that way on 8-track and a format later called CD-4. Oh, man. 8-track. So, and you can really hear it. Weirdly enough, the last um, track on this album, I Wish You Peace. I Wish You Peace. Yeah. You can really hear that sort of – they played with that effect a lot. But so, I thought that was interesting. So, Are you ready you, to get to it? You have something to say about Let's this get album. to it, Kyle, as Let's I'm sure it. you've been waiting for this. Let's do it. So when you put this on the calendar, mm -hmm. man, I was pissed at you. <laughs> I was so angry. I thought you knew how much I couldn't stand them. And, but apparently, <laughs> I didn't make myself clear. No, I knew you were not a big fan, but uh, I did not know you could not stand them. I dreaded the time I would actually have to listen to the album and dreaded even more sitting down to actually write about it. That means I would have to listen to it more than once and really think about it. How am I going to do this? What's the proper approach? Do I just casually go through the motions and dismiss it the way I would like to? Or take it seriously? And while our podcast is pretty successful, I would say, I'm not a professional journalist, but I have some journalistic integrity. So I needed Fair. to be professional about this, regardless of how much I want to be an asshole. Another Robert Christgau... I will not be. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I even found a few nice things to say about Ooh, Oasis. That's true. Which, frankly, was a miracle. So the first order of business was to listen to the record all the way through. Okay. Did that. The next thing to do was to really examine why I hated them as much <laughs> as I did. What was the root of the loathing? Because as it appears on the surface... I should like them, or at least not find them nearly as objectionable as I had. Fair. Sure, they aren't great lyricists, but I listen to other bands with shittier lyrics. They aren't stellar musicians, but I listen to other bands with lesser musicians, even bad ones. His voice, namely Don Henley's, isn't my favorite, and it isn't perfect, but I listen to The Cure and stuff like that, so I can forgive that. So what was it? There had to be a reason. My brother liked them. That's another point for them. We tended to like a lot of the same things, diverged in some places, but I don't think that's why I would hate them. What was it? And when it came down, Kyle, I can honestly say that the seed was sown in adolescence and snowballed from there into some unrecognizable ire in my adulthood that really had no legitimate basis in anything except disdain for personalities. So when I was in my teens... They were that one band that everyone knew, but no one listened to, you know? <laughs> okay. Everyone, and I mean everyone, had a copy of Eagle's Greatest Hits 71 to 75 laying around. It has sold, as you said, 40 to 50 million copies worldwide, one of the three most highest selling albums of all time, depending on who you ask. And it was always around. People would put it on 
at parties. But no one would listen. You know how if you put on Journey's greatest hits, everyone sings along the yeah. whole time? No one would do that with this album. So why did everyone have it? I didn't have it. And it started to feel like a pass to a club. If you wanted to be in the club with the cool kids, it was, hey, do you have the Eagles' greatest hits? Well, of course. Well, then put that on. But no one knew it. And I think that bugged me. So in my ridiculous teenage mind, I thought to distance myself from the band entirely. And then it, then came the, we will only get back together when hell freezes over statement. <laughs> and I was like, who the hell do they think they are? That people would give two shits about them getting back together. And then, of course, hell froze over. And they capitalized on the stupidity of the situation by naming it that tour. It's the Hell Freezes <laughs> Over tour. Cashing in to the nth degree and starting what would be the first of a lot of farewell tours. Another phenomenon that rubs me the wrong way. The false ending. Then... Don Henley becomes a giant boob in my eyes, and he seems like a super pretentious asshat, rightly or wrongly, and I just can't handle it. Then, of course, the Hotel, the hotel California thing. Everyone wants to try it at karaoke, or a piano bar, or Guitar Hero, Ugh. and oh my god, it's the best song in the history of creation, and my head is going to explode. So I start to answer for that question, what song could you go the rest of your life without hearing? And my answers are Bohemian Rhapsody and Hotel California. And people look at me like I just killed a puppy. <laughs> but honestly, I'm over it. And for those reasons, the very least of them having to do with the music, I have hated the Eagles for nigh on 35 years now. <laughs> but I am here to say, Kyle, that I am not above this. I have listened to this record through and through several times. I have listened to a lot of their catalog, and with a few exceptions, I like it. Ooh. And I should. And this album is pretty damn good. I will have some honest things to say about it, but generally, I dig it. I do have some things to say about the Eagles crowd in general, but I think you're going to be surprised over where this episode goes. All right. So, so that, did, I, did I change your mind on music? Yeah. <gasps> Yeah, it yes, happened. You did. you did. We can end the podcast now. It's over. <laughs> we can we can wrap this up. There's like there's like twelve marks on the wall for Matthew and one for Kyle. I win. <laughs> oh, that's good though. That's yeah. that's that's the whole reason we're doing this podcast is to get people to listen to music that they wouldn't otherwise listen to and see if they find something new that they like. And if they don't, they can move on. And right? if they do, great. And it happened to one of us. That's so cool. So I take a break and uh, do a track by track. Let's do it. All Let's right. take a quick break and uh, I'm going to celebrate my victory and uh, we'll do a track by track. Sounds good. One of these nights, Matthew. Well, what mm, bang uh, zoom right to the moon right to the moon title track from the record first right. single released band's second song to hit number one on the billboard top 100 mm -hmm. written by don henley and glenn frey yeah uh, henley on vocals on this one however don felder came up with the opening bass line uh, it sounds a little bit like this
I keep calling him Frey. Yeah. It's Is Fry. It Fry or Frey? It's Fry. Fry? Okay. Yeah. Spelled Frey, pronounced Fry. Very conscious attempt to get away from the ballads and country-tinged songs they've been writing and write something with a little more edge. Those are their words, not mine. Hmm. I find that statement weird because there is really nothing hard-edged about this song at all. Yeah, there really isn't. Uh, if anything, it kind of hovers in between soft rock, or later referred to as yacht rock, and disco. I mean, that drum pattern... The falsetto vocals, the way the harmonies are laid out, all scream disco to me. Fair enough. Um, Henley even said in an interview that the four on the floor bass drum part was a nod to the Bee Gees. But in the same interview, he said that they wanted it to sound like it had more teeth. So I'm confused. While it is a great song, there are no teeth at all. Uh, I don't think. I mean, it's a beautiful song, but there's no teeth to it. The song is clearly written by Henley and Fry because the lyrics aren't clearly defined about what the guy is looking for uh, in the first verse, he already has the girl mm -hmm. and he's trying to figure out what turns her on. And in the second verse, he's still looking for her or he's looking for another side of the same girl that he already has the crazy uninhibited side lyrics. Like I've been searching for the daughter of the devil himself. I've been searching for an angel in white. I've been waiting for a woman who's a little bit of both and I can feel her, but she's nowhere in sight. Generally, I can't say that I enjoy the lyrics to most Eagles songs, but those are really good. Those are really smart lyrics. It's a lovely song, but it's it's pretty soft. This is yacht rock. Yeah. It's the stuff I used to listen to at the dentist's office, uh, but I quite enjoy it now. You mentioned the bass line. I'm a yes. really big fan of the bass line in the song. Uh, and when they say this song was influenced by R&B and stuff like that from the 50s and 60s, that's where I hear it most, in the bass line. Yeah, I can definitely see that as well. Bass is played in the song by Randy Meisner, who also provides all of the high harmonies in the mm -hmm. song as well. From a Song Facts interview, uh, Glenn Fry cited this as an example of how he and Don Henley clicked as songwriters. He said, quote, I'd go over to the piano and say, hey, what do you think of this? And I'd play something and he'd go, yeah, I like that. I like that. Maybe just get up and start singing. Uh, that's the way we wrote one of these nights. I just went over to the piano and started playing in this little minor descending progression. And he comes over and goes singing one of these nights and goes, yeah, yeah. That's how you write songs. Yeah. You know, you just start, you start tinkling away on the piano and then somebody else just walks in and starts singing. All right. Someone yells about their underpants and it's like, wow, that's the perfect song. Right. <laughs> Wonderful. I find those songwriting things interesting when you're talking about musicians that are very talented. You know, we've talked about this on the, on the podcast several times before, how sometimes some of the best songs come in the shortest amount of time. Yeah. They just, hey, we have two hours and we need to put one more song on this album. Uh, I don't know. Blah, 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 blah. And then they have a couple They're almost accidents. Yeah. Too Many Hands? Uh, not any of these songs, no. The next song is called Too Many Hands, yeah. Written by Meisner and Felder, mm -hmm. with lead vocals being handled by Meisner, which gives this song a whole different quality to it. Yeah. It starts off like a, like a, it starts off like Wanted, Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi. Oh, yeah. Uh, with that really aggressive 12-string guitar. Uh, Meisner's voice is so much higher pitched than Henley's and a little whinier, too, so it makes the song a little more rough-edged, which is what they were going for in the first song. But the harmonies are equally brilliant. And that thick vocal harmony is a lot of what makes this band so easy to listen to. Yeah, It's so pleasant. The lead vocal on the song is a little tougher to listen to, but when those harmonies come in, they're so lush. It just makes it, it makes it very, it's, it's so nice. Yeah. The guitars, which are shared by Don Felder, Bernie Leiden, and Glenn Fry, certainly lean more towards Felder and Leiden because there's quite a bit of 
alternate stringed instruments on this one, including the banjo and the steel mm. guitar. One of the things that really sells this song for me is the drum part. Yes. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would really like a Don Henley drum part, but the pattern he is playing throughout the song on the ride cymbal is perfect for this song. Honestly, didn't think he had it in him, Yeah, but well, I was wrong. He plays the tabla here too, yeah. which is very, the percussion on it is great. And it definitely adds something to this song that makes it stand out from everything else. It's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Here's a little sample of it. I think this song is about a prostitute. Quote unquote, used up woman. Yeah. Yes. However, a better term. that being said, from verse two, uh, quote, it always seems to turn the tide at midnight and for her, there is no rest. We are doing what is best for our future. One of these days, she may not be so good to you. One of these days, she might shake you to the ground, but her fire is still burning and her heart is still yearning to be found. Maybe this song is about America. Ooh. Maybe it is. Wow. America the Prostitute. <laughs> wow, that we, song sounds so much different in my head. Please don't America come to the, my house and murder America me for the saying beautiful. America the Prostitute. America the Prostitute. Uh, yeah, but hmm. you know, honestly, I mean, I don't know how deep it goes, but the first time I, the first couple of times I heard this song, I was like, oh yeah, it's for sure about a prostitute or a woman of the night, or at the very least an, a woman who's had a rough life. And then I got thinking about it the other day and I was like, maybe this is supposed to be America or the woman is supposed to represent America as somebody who's, you know, been stepped on and kicked around a lot, but still has that fire inside and it still can kick your ass if we need to. I think they're that deep, huh? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, they could be. Maybe not. They could be. Who knows? I know. D forgive me. There's still part of my brain that's, <laughs> that hates them, not because I want to. It's just so ingrained in me that it's it just, just built right stuff in. just flies out of my mouth. That's and I fair. apologize. I apologize, everybody. Fair enough. Hollywood Waltz. Yeah. You hate this song? I, I don't hate this song. I don't like this song. What? So, go ahead. Written by Don Henley, uh, Glenn Fry, Bernie Ledden, and Tom Ledden. Yeah. Uh, Tom is Bernie's brother, and he is an accomplished musician in his own right. Yes. Having been a founding member of the band Mud Crutch with uh, somebody- Tom Petty. Somebody, uh, Tom Petty. No clue. Henley on vocals on this one. But it seems to return to that country-tinged flavor that they wanted to move on from. Yeah. But is it any wonder that Garth Brooks is such a huge fan of the Eagles and plays them in his concerts? Or does it come as any surprise that one of the current members of the band is Vince Gill, country superstar? Yeah. I can hear Garth Brooks so much in this song, or vice versa. And because I'm such a big fan of Mr. Brooks, it should play out that I love this song. And I do. Oh. Plenty of lap steel guitar in this song, and the tempo is perfect. The delivery is really, really good. It is a song that I could listen to over and over again. And here's the thing, Kyle. When I asked people I know about this song during my research period, no one knew what the hell I was talking about. Yeah. It is a very little known song off this album. Right? I think this one and one other one we'll get to are do a lot more. 
I guess is is a good way to put it. They should have a, high, a bigger audience associating this song and the other with right? Eagles, but they don't. Um, honestly, I feel like the reason I don't really like this song, it's not a, it doesn't fit in this section of the album for me. Hmm. And I think All that right. it, it's one that I was not familiar with before listening to the whole album. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I'm like, why does it suddenly switch to a waltzy, slow song right in the middle of this side and then go to something completely different afterwards, <gasps> which we'll get to. I love it. Me too. But, no, but I love this song. Oh, this song. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you meant the next song. But uh, uh, I don't Take a listen and, and tell me what you think. So that's an Eagles song? Yeah. Yes, it is. And I would play it for people, and there's not even a hint of recognition. Yeah. So I'm like, what the hell? So I decided to do some experiments Ooh. with lesser-known songs from this album and lesser-known songs from their whole catalog. Nada. And I started to realize that this is totally a greatest hits band. Much like Journey or Elton John or Billy Joel, like I talked about before, most people don't know anything about the Eagles outside of the major hits and an occasional minor one. Right. Like I mentioned at the outset, their first greatest hits comp Population has sold 40 plus million copies, but none of their actual studio releases, with the exception of Hotel California, get a tenth of that, right? And that's on the basis of that song, Hotel California. Yeah. I'm very much a B-side kind of guy. I love the deep cuts because there's usually something unique about those songs that doesn't always appeal to the mainstream audience. But I think a lot of times that's what makes bands like this implode. Think about it for a second. Take a band like Rush, which I always do. (laughs) They have a devoted following of people, a strong alliance of fans that cover all parts of their career. Some like the old songs, some like the new, and all of us can find something that we love. What intrigued the band the most, though, is that while they had a handful of hits, and I use that term loosely, they could pull from any corner of their catalog and make someone happy, or even themselves. Okay. They knew they had to play those four or five songs every night, and they did because it was the mass appeal without being the whole show. Now, a band like the Eagles would have to play all of those mega hits every night, and the grind to just roll out and play them like a jukebox must have been overwhelming. You pull out a song like this just to make yourself smile, and you watch 75% of your audience get up to use the John or buy a beer. (laughs) So you have to play Heartache Tonight to make them happy, and you start alienating your bandmates because a lot of those songs are written by one set of guys, so the others feel left out. And then that group wants a bigger chunk of the profits, since it's their songs that are getting people to show up in the first place, and then the infighting begins. What am I getting at? Listen to the whole record, people, and you may find a gem like this song. You played the section that I pulled out lyrically. Springtime and the lady is grieving. The lovers just stand there with nothing to say. 
say. They got what they wanted. They're packing and leaving to look for another to love the same way. Come on, that that's nice. That is good shit. And again, I will say, just because I don't like this song does not mean it's not a good song. Musically, it's wonderfully put together. Yes. And I think in a different context, this song would be much better sounding to me. It's just as a whole, as an album, it just doesn't fit on here for me. And it kind of turns me off. I love I absolutely love that song. You want to talk about Albi Gluten real quick? Albi- <laughs> what? Albi Gluten? Who is that? Albi Gluten is the guy who played the synthesizer here. Oh. He is one of those behind the scenes super musicians slash producers. Albi Gluten? Albi Gluten. A-L-B-H-Y. Albi. You be gluten. Uh, he is one of those uh, uh, weird behind-the-scenes musicians, producers, composers, who, across the board, he has been on so many albums you wouldn't believe. He's produced 18 number one hits for other artists. Ooh. 18. He has a number of patents, mostly involving music tech, like drum loop machines and electronics and things like that. His body of work encompasses so many artists that he can be credited with album sales of over 100 million. That's a pretty good amount. That is a pretty pretty fucking big number. So, and again, somebody who I had never heard of before. So, and apparently huge in the music industry. What, Albie Gluten? Albie Gluten. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Journey of the Sorcerer, Matthew. <laughs> and I, this is uh, written by Bernie Ledden. It's an instrumental. Uh-huh. And it is my favorite song on this album. What? And I, <laughs> I just get the feeling from you. You're going to say you hate this song. No. Huh? Okay. Uh, it's something I never really expected to find on an Eagles album, a full-on instrumental. I like it. Would you consider this song prog rock? Yeah. Right? Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy. It's an interesting experiment that I think works. Yeah. Uh, strings are really good, performed by the Royal Martian Orchestra. Which, did you do any research into them? Isn't it just an invention? Yes. Of the Eagles? Oh, sorry, of Eagles? Pretty much. As far as I can tell, <laughs> so they're credited on a couple of Eagles album Eagles albums. <laughs> I caught myself. They're credited on a couple of Eagles, Eagles albums. albums. Um, nobody can quite say what they are. There's no explanation for who they are. The only clue is from the liner notes that says recorded in root with the term in root in quotation marks, which nobody can really say what that is. So here's what I think. I think Bernie Ledden uh, used a bunch of multi-track recording machines to record himself playing different parts over and over and over again. Probably. Maybe with some help from his brother Tom on the instruments, and then they credit it that way as an inside joke. I like that. Right? That's I think what that's I think. smart. The other thing about this song yes. that I was sure, I was like, this is a secret. I'm going to be the only one that knows this. And then it's a huge fucking thing on the Wikipedia Oh, you're going to say something song. about Hitchhiker's Guide? I am. <laughs> so this was chosen as the theme song for Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. First, the BBC Radio series from 1978 and 79, then the BBC TV series, where I know it from in 1981. But then it was replaced because royalties became too steep. Exactly. And then was used again in the theatrical version yep. of the same title, but this time it was a cover version. They didn't yes. use this version of it. Uh, however- Because it got expensive. Yeah, it got- Well, because the- Eagles. Eagles. You knew that what they had on their hands, and they were like, no, we're going to keep charging you more and more money for it. So they started to do cover versions sounds of like it. Sounds like Don Henley. Uh, but this is a little bit what it sounds like.
that's it really is a little bit of what it sounds yes. like <laughs> but uh i was sure i was i was like you're the only one who knows this it. is gonna be a secret that only real fucking hardcore nerds know <laughs> and then it's everybody just, knew it it's all over the so thanks internet for that there's but, also uh, some uh lovely fiddle work on oh, this yeah. song by david bromberg mm-hmm. this guy is super interesting as well his yes. resume is extensive and i would love to do a judo chop about him i'm gonna put it on my list sweet yeah would say played with uh likes of willie nelson jerry garcia Jerome kauken bob dylan uh and he covered the song the hold up with george harrison who right <laughs> honestly i love this song i found this when i was in like high school and nerd i know um <laughs> i i found it before i had seen the douglas adams tv series slash uh uh radio shows and uh, found it with only the title, no accreditation to who was playing. Okay. Because that's how you used to find music. You'd download it from whatever source you could find, and you'd be like, what the fuck is this? And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. this is great. And I listened to it torrent. for years, pretty much. Yeah. Well, pre-Torrent. This was Lime-wire. this was even like pre-Napster bullshit. That's how old I am. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you know, download it. You have no idea who it is. And then I heard it as the theme song to Douglas Adams' uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV series. And I was like, oh, so they obviously drew it from there. And then years later, found out it was an Eagles song. And I was like, oh, shit. All right. That's crazy. Weird, right? Very weird. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some consensus, at least a little bit, uh, that when they, they did play this song live a couple of times uh, with Don Felder on slide guitar. Uh, how true that is, uh, since it comes from the memory of the people who saw the concerts in the 1970s? It. I don't believe any of them. I don't know whether that's true or not. Nope. But uh, there was a whole forum about people like did they ever play this live and then they would list it off and be like i can't find my bootleg of that concert but i remember it being on there and i thought i wrote it down after the concert but it really just says get doritos right because i was so high so let's flip this album over matthew lion eyes lion eyes I absolutely love this song. It is a very good song. And I was trying to figure out why. It sounds like something I've kind of heard before. Well, of course I love it, Kyle. Give it a listen and tell me that it doesn't sound like Toad the Wet Sprocket. There is rock there, but there is also a lot of country and Mm -hmm. some simple elements. The only thing that is radically different is Fry's voice and not Glenn Phillips. I think Glenn's voice would have sweetened it up a little bit, and I would have loved that even more. This, of course, is very frustrating for me (laughs) to look at it with some maturity because I should have just liked the fucking Eagles from the start instead of all this teenage bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, but live and learn because they're similar. That's, uh, oh yeah. Yeah, here's what it sounds like. Oh, okay. So she tells him she must go out for the evening to comfort an old friend. knows where she's going and she's leaving she is headed for the cheating side of town you can't
those guitar lines. Yeah. So iconic. Again, if you've ever listened to classic rock radio, you've heard this song. Uh, it's a song all about a woman cheating on her man with a younger man. She's torn between the two because her husband is rich and he can give her the things that she wants, but the boy loves her and can give her... <laughs> What she needs. Whoa. Song released as the second single from the album, reached number two on the Billboard Top 100 and number eight on the country chart. Yeah. A fairly notable achievement. It was held off the top spot by Island Girl by Elton John. Island Girl. It was also this song that would win them their first Grammy for best performance by a pop group or duo. It was nominated for Record of the Year, but lost to Captain and Tennille's Love Will Keep Us Together. A great song, no doubt, but I don't think it had the legs that this song did. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Fry would sometimes slip in a dig at his ex-wife, uh, Janie, when they performed this live, uh, dedicating it to Plaintiff. Right. Plaintiff. Great. Anecdotally, um, Don Felder tells a story about the late Glenn Fry and his meticulousness of the studio about mm. getting sounds just right. Mm -hmm. He said Glenn Fry was extremely particular about how he sang the first word in this song, city. It would either be a little early or a little late, or the T would be too sharp, he told Ultimate Classic Rock. But every time that word goes by now and I hear it, I can appreciate the time and dedication and perseverance that it took to get it perfect. But it's that attention to detail that usually yields results. Yeah, You can casually throw together a song and maybe no one ever noticed is the tea in city, but pouring over details like that can sometimes bring about other changes that make the song better. I think that's just, uh, I think it's just wonderful. Yeah. Did you hear the legend about how this song came to be? No. So the legend I don't know, maybe. goes like this. They say that the band was hanging out at their favorite bar called Dantana's. They saw a beautiful woman come in with a much older, but very rich looking husband. Glenn Fry said, look at her. She can't even hide those lion eyes. The band immediately knew they had a song. And uh, hanging in the air in front of them, and they started grabbing napkins to write down the lyrics. Um, from History of the Eagles, a documentary from Somebody 2013, write that down. John Henley uh, is quoted as saying, It was about all these girls that would come down to Dantana's looking beautiful. They'd be there from eight o'clock until midnight having drinks with all of us rockers, and then they'd go home because they were kept women. That's, I like it. You know what they did, Matthew? Did they take it to the limit? They took it to the limit. <laughs> Uh, this one written by uh, Randy Meisner, uh, Don Henley, and Glenn Fry. Uh, Randy on vocals for this one. The strings were arranged here by Jim. Randy was on vocals? Randy, our, our uh, producer Randy, was on vocals. <laughs> uh, the strings were arranged here by Jim Ed Norman. Yeah, Jim Ed. Jim Ed. Uh, Jim is a musician, a record producer, and worked as the head of the label for Warner Brothers for many, many years. Uh, he would go on to work with Eagles on all of their following albums. He produced albums for a huge list of artists. Too long to list here, but he's credited on lots of platinum albums. Lots. Uh, he also sounds like a pretty decent guy. Uh, he pushed to open the Warner Western Division, which features Native American and cowboy artists, and a Hispanic label called Warner Discos. Uh, he also created the Progressive Division at Warner Brothers, which signed acts like Take Six, Bella Fleck, and the Flecktones, Mark O'Connor, and Sean Lane. Uh, in 1993, he won the Anti-Defamation League's Johnny Cash Americanism Award, which is given to recognize individuals who have fought against racism, prejudice, and bigotry. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. He does sound like a good right? guy. Uh, according to Randy, producer Randy, uh, he wrote the first few lines of the song one night while playing an acoustic guitar after returning from the Troubadour. He wasn't able to finish the song by the time uh, they were close to recording the album, so Don Henley and Glenn Fry helped him with the lyrics. It's another so Eagles song uh, that I think pretty much 
everyone knows, right? Yeah. This is a song that is synonymous with eagles. I think some of the other songs, some people nowadays would be like, I think I know who that is, but this one is most certainly eagles. Uh, and this particular song would lead the band to begin to splinter. Like you said, written by Ma- Randy Meiser, who helped, uh, in complete, who was helped to complete it by Don Henley and uh, Glenn Fry. said he sat on the song for a long time. He was unable to finish it. Meisner sung the song, and the song grew very popular with the fans in their concerts. But because of how high it is in his register, he grew very luck- reluctant to perform it. Yeah. Uh, and there was growing resentment from Fry and Henley because he wouldn't sing it. In 77, at a show in Knoxville, Tennessee, Meisner refused to sing the song and said that he was up late the night before and came down with the flu. Fry and him then got into a nasty fist fight backstage. After that, Meisner started to get frozen out of anything to do with the band and quit at the end of the tour, ultimately being replaced by Timothy B. Schmidt. And this is the kind of the way the band was. Fry is a fucking hothead. Yeah. He went after several of them, actually. Um, you mentioned its success, right? A little bit, yeah. But it did go to number four on the Billboard Hot yeah. 100, oh. number four on the U.S. Adult Contemporary Chart, and number five on the Cashbox Top 100. It does also get a shit ton of play on classic rock radio. Which, oh, yes, it does. Yeah. Because of that, and because of something I'll go back over in just a second here, here's a clip from their live concert at the Forum in LA, October 1976. So had to use the live clip for two reasons. So number one, because of everything that you just talked about, how he was very reluctant to sing it live. Mm. I did kind of want to put that out there and say, hey, you know what? This is what he sounded like live. It sounds really good. It's different than the album version. It's not as high. It sounds really good. But it sounds good. Second reason is because copyright law in the United States is a piece of shit. It is so hard to find a place where I could get a copy of this that I could rip to use to play back for this episode. It doesn't exist on YouTube. There are 50 versions of them singing it live. There are no recorded versions from the album. Oh. Every other song from the album is available on YouTube. This one is not. They're quite litigious. They are quite litigious with this one. So you get to hear the live version, which I think is a nice little uh, a sample of, like I said, what it sounds like live. It's funny so, how big this song got, because yeah. considering there is nothing hard or rocky about this song, which is what they wanted out of this album. Uh, this is that perfect Southern California blend of pop, country, and folk. It is a style that is very unique to that area of the country. Uh, the only way to describe it is laid back. Yeah. The song just drifts by like a cool ocean breeze, and there are just so many similarities 
with Toad in this sound because naturally they're from Southern California. Surprise! Lilting is a good word for it. Oh. But if you want a really unique take on this song, there is a version by legendary blues singer Etta James from her 1977 album Deep in the Night. Amazing. And how must that feel to hear one of the musical legends of all time sing your song? Probably pretty damn good. Pretty special. That's got to be pretty cool. Uh, Visions? Visions. Uh, Written by Don Henley and Don Felder. The Dons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vocals mostly by Don Felder, but also includes Don Henley, Bernie Ledden, and Glenn Fry. It's the only song in their catalog sung mm-hmm. by Don Felder, despite the fact that he wanted to write and sing more. They blocked him at every turn. Yeah. And it's not a bad song at all. It even fits in nice with the rest of the album. Yeah. This seems to just be some more control freak shit from Henley and Fry, yeah. stuff that we've seen before in other this bands. Is, this is another one that, uh, you know, I feel like this should get more radio play. I feel like this song is good enough that it should have had a bigger rock music influence behind it, and it never did. Uh, here's a little sample. Chingadero makes an appearance in the lyrics here. Right? I know. Probably a reference to Boyd Elder, obviously. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, The cover designer, who we mentioned earlier, but they maybe just wanted to say, play on, motherfuckers, play on, on the radio without being censored. Don Felder is an interesting fella. I know you gave some of his biography. Yeah. Uh, This is the first album he appeared on, uh, but he began trying to exert control over the band almost immediately. Mm -hmm. He he wanted more writing chances, more singing chances, and this often uh, led to arguments with his bandmates, including the hot-headed Fry. Uh, When Joe Walsh joined the band, he tried to recruit him to his side, and there was often a squaring off between the two pairs, Walsh and Felder, against Fry and Henley. Oftentimes, the animosity spilled onto stage with one famous concert in which Fry and Felder threatened to kick each other's ass when the show was over, (laughs) speaking this into the mic and not keeping anything from the crowd. Uh, After the show, Fry smashed one of Felder's guitars, and the band broke up shortly thereafter. He busied himself through the 80s on non-successful solo albums, eventually rejoined the band in 94 for Hell Freezes Over, but in 2001, he was fired from the band and then sued them for $50 million in royalties. He then released his tell-all autobiography, which did nothing to smooth over the relationship, <laughs> and they are still estranged to this day. Some, rock and roll! Something about something about successful musicians. Rock and roll! People who can play music and write music, and it just attracts a type of person that just, they just cannot be in the same room with one another. It's crazy, isn't it? Right? After the thrill is gone. Which fits perfectly with what we were just talking about. Right? A clear reference to B.B. King's The Thrill is Gone. Kind of an unofficial sequel, right? Uh, This one, again, written by Don Henley and Glenn Fry, with both handling vocals on here. Uh, And I literally just wrote down the question, what happens after The Thrill is Gone, Matthew? I don't know. It wasn't uh, ever commercially successful, but it's a fan favorite. Yeah. Has a very familiar melody. Sounds like 70s soft rock radio. Yeah, it sounds like this. Time passes. Keep on singing for the sake of the song 
song could be about what happens after the thrill is gone from a relationship, but it could also be what happens when the thrill is gone from starting a band and becoming famous. You know what I mean? It's a bummer. Yeah. It is a real downer of a it's song. It's a bummer song. It's sad. Serious lamenting here. <sighs> I wish you peace, Kyle. Oh, thank you. I wish you peace as well. Last song in the record? Uh, Bernie Ledden and Patty Davis wrote this one. With vocals by Bernie. Patty Davis is who? Patty Davis was Bernie's girlfriend at the time. She's and? She's also the daughter of then governor of California, Ronald Reagan. Right, and future president, Ronald Reagan. Her mother, Nancy Reagan, had disowned Patty because of her choices to live with Bernie as an unmarried couple. Yeah, she was shacking up. Right? Good to know Nancy was always a piece of shit, uh, and it didn't just happen after she got to the White House. <laughs> it's not uh, a great song. No. Pretty weak and schmaltzy. Right? Uh, In fact, uh, Don Henley was upset that Patty had been given writing credit on this and didn't care for the song. Oh, he hated the song. Saying in an interview, quote, nobody else wanted the song. We didn't feel it was up to the band's standards, but we put it on anyway as a gesture to keep the band together. He hated hated that she got songwriting credit because she got a cut of the royalties because of that. Oh, that's garbage. Dude. No wonder he's pissed. And this is, have a listen. This is such a schmaltzy song. other track uh, for me along with Hollywood Waltz that I don't think fits on this This album. song sucks. Nah, it's it's, it's not a, it's not great. It's, it's a, a super weak song to end a record on. Yeah. I mean, I totally get putting the worst song at the end. Sure. But it just ends and you're like, that's it. <laughs> that's the end of this and album. And that's too bad because I wanted more. Yeah. Eagles it's hard to not say right? the Eagles. Eagles would, of course, go on to worldwide success many times over with their next two albums and are still a consistent concert draw. Yo, so yeah. the shit song at the end of this album didn't hurt them too much. I have been stuck in a traffic jam because an Eagles concert was getting out <laughs> here in Las Vegas. I'm not, oh, I'm not MGM kidding. Grand? Yeah. yeah. Uh, stuck behind the MGM Grand in a traffic jam just sitting there because there's so many drunk boomers crossing the street. Thanks, Boomer. And, and they don't give a shit about traffic laws so they just walk out in front of cars and stuff and you just have to sit there parked so okay thanks boomer boomer. okay boomer (laughs) uh yeah i'm a little pissed about it because it really was i had to go to the bathroom and i had to sit in my car for 45 minutes and i feel your anger very upsetting very upsetting traumatizing uh, to me that's one of these nights by eagles right fantastic record by a band that i overlooked for years and years and will do no more i am so happy like i said earlier that we just Proved that the podcast can work. Yeah. After what, 89 episodes is what this will be? This is 87. 87. Excuse me. After 87 episodes, we proved that you can take people who have heard this music before and get them to reconsider. Right. And had strong opinions. And I'm not saying I'm lining up to see them in concert because I'm not going to pay $3,000 to see them. But I certainly won't cringe and change the channel whenever these songs come on the radio. Great. It's a nice addition to my musical base after all these years. So thanks, Kyle. Glad I could uh, bring something along that uh, was good for you. If you would like to get a hold of us and tell me what a boob I was for ignoring the Eagles for all these years, you can get a hold of us at facebook.com forward slash audio judo, mm-hmm. Twitter 
at Audio Judo or Instagram at Audio underscore Judo. Or if you'd like to send us an email, which is usually the most efficient way to get a hold of us, you can send it to info at AudioJudo.com. Kyle and I get both of those at the same time. So yeah. it's really just a race to see who responds. So shout out to our patrons. Uh, we still don't have anybody in the shout it out loud tier. So if you want your name read at the end of an episode, get in there. Uh, front row seats tier, Aaron P, Darling W, Michael A, and Jacob S. Thank you so much. Backstage pass tier, Christian S, David W, Michael S, and Scott K. Thank you all very much. Yes, we have episodes coming up from Toad the Wet Sprocket as we premiere season four, mm-hmm. Dave Matthews Band, Soundgarden, the Moody Blues, No Doubt, and many, many more as we ramp up into season four. So once again, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.